Uh, let me just pray and, and we'll start. Lord, we thank you so much for your protection from the enemy and your provision for us each day. We thank you, Lord, that even though sometimes there are technical problems, that uh, it's not a big deal and that uh, your message is going to go out and it can't be stopped. Your word cannot be stopped. We thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. And we pray for Jacob today that you would give him your words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So very sorry for the delay. I've been trying to get on for 20 minutes. I gave up and had to come to a different room with a different computer. But let's begin with Psalm 2, please. Looking at Psalm 2. Okay. Now, as we always point out when we look at Psalms, Psalms are very different in the original language than they are in English, in certain respects, very different. One, it's not one book of Psalms. There are multiple books of Psalms. Two, a, a Psalm is called a Mizmor, Mizmor. A single Psalm is called a Mizmor, okay? Uh, but the book of Psalms is called Mizmorim, Mizmorim. Literally, the book of poems, the book of poems. Uh, can you still see me? Okay. And what we're going to be doing in the next few weeks is looking at the key messianic and prophetic psalms, the key messianic and prophetic psalms. Ah, Mizmorim. Uh, Most of the Psalms have some kind of a Christological reference in them, something about Christ. But some are more specifically about Christ, and those are the ones we're going to be focusing on. Tonight, beginning with Psalm 2, the second Psalm. Again, it's a literary genre. It's a literary genre where poetry is used as a vehicle of prophetic prediction. We normally think of Psalms as a hymn book because so many of our hymns and choruses come from psalms. And that aspect is true. David composed psalms and worship to the Lord and so forth. But we don't think of psalms normally as prophetic poetry, prophetic poetry, poetry that's predictive about the Messiah and about the return of the Messiah. We all have a high regard for the psalms as worship, lyrics, music, whatever. But that's not what we'll be looking at. We're going to be looking at the prophetic aspects, both messianic for his first coming and messianic for his return, for his second coming. Look with me, please, to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The lighting in this room is so terrible. The mirek shu goim ulamim yegu arech ifitzvuhu marki aretz uruznim. The nations, the goim, that is the non-Jewish nations, nations not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Um, 
And the, we, it's translated heathen, but it's more like the folks, the folks, the ordinary folks of the nations. They are mumbling empty things. They're, they're saying empty things, lech. Like Jesus said, if you call somebody raka, you're in danger of hell. I mean, somebody with an empty head. People believe nonsense. They speak absolute rubbish. That's what it's talking about. They say things that are absolute rubbish, but they believe them. Ordinary people begin speaking absolute rubbish, but they believe them. They believe the rubbish they're speaking. Okay. Then it says, it's the boo. They are positioning or stationing themselves. Marquis, the kings of the audits of the earth, and the ones who are being like government leaders or, or, or something like that, bureaucrats, they are in deliberation, okay? Ni'udu echad, one, they have a, a unity. Ol ol They are together in unity, in deliberation, together against or in some kind of opposition to stationing themselves or positioning themselves in opposition to, and they're deliberating on how to do it together against, we translate it the Lord, but in Hebrew it is not the Lord, it is Yahweh, against Yahweh. They're doing it against God himself, not the Lord, it's against Yahweh and his Messiah and his Messiah. The kings of the earth take their stand. as a little bit tricky because there's a verse difference between the Hebrew and the English, so it's very difficult to go back and forth. There's a verse difference. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters asunder and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Messianic prophecy. Now, when it says begotten, the Greek word in the New Testament is monogenes, the only begotten of the Father. But it does not mean in the sense of uh, procreation. The Son was eternally, eternally existent. But when he came in human form, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was begotten directly of God. Adam was made from the earth. Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, was directly begotten of God, that is, physically, physiologically, biologically. Okay. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my sons that I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. 
Now that term nations is the same word that you have in verse two. Um, the goyim, the goyim, or I'm sorry, verse one in English, the nations in an uproar. Same word. God is going to give these nations as an inheritance to his son. And the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Jesus is going to take this place. And we're told in Daniel, and we're told in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to share his dominion with the faithful believers. Then it continues. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. In festal meals, the Hebrews would go on the pilgrim feasts, particularly before Jerusalem was built to Shiloh, and they would have clay dishes, reddish clay dishes. I've got some specimens of it that they would bring with them. And then they would have the ritual meals, be it Passover or whatever it was, and then they would smash the plates. They would smash the plates. It breaks very easily. Let's see if I can find one. This is a jug handle from Shiloh, Shiloh. I acquired it legally, I assure you. It's not an illegal artifact. But they smashed these things and just left them all over the place. These things break very easily. It's the ancient equivalent of paper plates, something designed to be disposable. That's how God is going to treat these nations, as something good for nothing once you've used it for your purpose, other than to break it and dispose of it. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. He's warning them not to continue doing what they're doing. But in verse 12, do homage to the son, lest he become angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Neshika is kiss. It says, Nishku, like Baror, purity. Po enough, Udabdo, Doki, Ivor, Kimot, Afu, Ashrai, Kihuzi, Bayo. Literally, kiss the son, kiss him. Uh, unless he is being angry, not that he becomes, but if he's being angry and you are perishing in the way that will consume you as, as something insignificant, kimat, almost, almost, like insignificant, almost. The anger of him. Ashrei, happy, ki or those who take 
or seek refuge in him or security in him um, by you. Kiss the sun or he is being angry at you. It's not that he's going to become angry. The Lord is already angry at the nations. He's already angry at the nations. In the book of Revelation, which is we're going to focus tonight, where these prophecies are fulfilled or are going to be fulfilled, we see that there's people called, like Revelation 7, out of every nation, out of every ethnic nation, out of every goy in Hebrew, or out of every ethne. We get the word ethnon in Greek. There's going to be individuals called out of these nations who will kiss the sun. But the nations themselves, God is already angry at them. He's already angry at them. There's something worthless to him. They are something worthless to him. The people in it are not worthless to him, but the nations are worthless to him because of their rejection of him and their sin. And it says that he mocks them. He scoffs at them in verse 4. When people reject Christ, when they reject belief in God, when they turn to godlessness, when a nation, a society, its leaders turn to godlessness, God laughs at them. He laughs at them because he sees their destruction coming. God has a sense of humor that many Christians would find offensive. He mocks his enemies. Look with me, please, if you will, to Psalm 37. We see about evildoers and these people who act against God and act against his people. But it says in verse 13, these people who plot against the righteous, um, they gnash their teeth in anger against the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. When you see these people who have no regard for God or his standards of morality, righteousness, for his law, when you see these people who will be hostile, hostile towards belief in God, um, Richard Hawkins and these kinds of people, these pro-abortion advocates or militant homosexuals and things like this, these people have no regard for God. And they have a hatred for those who do. Now, we don't like to think about it this way. But God sees their destruction coming. And before the throne of God, they become a subject of ridicule. They become a subject of ridicule. They make themselves God's enemies. They reject his offer of salvation. They become extremely arrogant. They take counsel against him. 
They take counsel against those who believe in it. Ultimately, they will take counsel against Israel and the Jews and try to obliterate Israel, ethnic Israel. God laughs at these people. He laughs at them. The more arrogant they become, the more angry they become towards him, the God-haters, the more God laughs at them. What is God's response to arrogant people? Uh, and you see this arrogance. I've seen it in Darwinists. I've seen it in feminists. I've seen it in homosexual activists. I've seen it in abortion activists. I've seen it in religiosity. I was reading something by a ridiculous female Presbyterian theologian yesterday. It's unbelievable. It was unbelievable what she was saying. Unbelievable. God mocks these people. He mocks them. Oh, we have to pray for their salvation and hope they get saved. That's true up to a point. But remember, things go so far for so long when God draws the line. In Jeremiah, before the Babylonian captivity, God said, stop praying for these people. They are going to Babylon. God commanded Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. Oh, we have to love and we shouldn't judge and we shouldn't. It's not our judgment. It's what God says. Concerning militant homosexuality and so forth. You see this in Romans 1. God gives them over. Like the false prophets of Ahab. God put a lying spirit in their mouth. He made them believe the lie. When Micaiah told the truth. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with the Antichrist. The Lord will send a deluding influence among them. Remember, Zechariah 11, the Antichrist becomes God's instrument of judgment. It's a difficult subject, but God mocks his enemies. Oh, he shows grace to sinners. He'd greatly prefer these people get saved. But the scriptures tell us God will not be mocked. And if you persecute the faithful church, or if you persecute Israel and the Jews, you make God your enemy. You poke your finger into the apple of his eye. You deliberately poke your finger into the apple of his eye. We are told in Proverbs that those who rob and exploit the poor are robbing from God. Just as those who give to the poor are giving to God, those who rob the poor are robbing God. He sees these people who persist in this evil. Now, unfortunately, we live in an age where the word faith money preachers have robbed the poor. They've exploited poor people. I've seen them do it. They're robbing God. They're so boisterous, and they, they, they masquerade it with religious hype artistry and things like this. And they even call on the name of the Lord. 
we have to understand it, it's, yeah, it, it's revolting, but God mocks his enemies. When we receive the judgment of Satan in Isaiah 14, and we have a teaching called the judgment of Satan, it's an old Moriel recording. You see that Satan is going to be eternally mocked. That what happened to Jesus on the cross when he was mocked, he was Jesus was temporarily mocked on the cross. He was mocked in our place. Okay, he was mocked so we wouldn't have to be. But Satan is going to be eternally mocked, according to Isaiah. Eternally. Well, let's continue. Look with me, please, with these things in view, to where they find their prophetic and messianic, but particularly tonight, eschatological, for want of a better term, fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Look with me, if you'd be so kind, to Revelation chapter 17, please. The lighting in here is horrific, sorry. Verse 10, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he will remain a little longer. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Okay. Now move ahead to verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw, the harlot, sit sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. We'll take the second point first. Look with me back, please, once again, to where we began, Psalm 2. The nations are in an uproar. They devise a vain thing. Now, in the Hebrew, it resembles or alludes to a raging sea. It allude, poetically alludes to a raging sea, kind of. But now in Revelation 17, 15, we see the waters where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. They're in an uproar against the Lord and his anointed. These are nations to do with the waters in biblical typology the earth when it's contrasted to the sea the earth has to do with Israel and the sea has to do with the nations okay specifically the nations around the Mediterranean 
the known world at that time, the Levant and so forth, the nations of the sea, Israel being the earth. When the Antichrist comes, one beast comes from the earth, one from the sea. One has a primary function of deceiving the nations, the other has a primary function of deceiving Israel and the Jews. But I digress a little bit. It's in the book, Shadows of the Beast, should you be interested. Let's continue. Look at it once again. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, let's go back to the previous verse uh, in Revelation 17, verses 10 and 11. Seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. You see that. Antichrist always counterfeits Christ. Christ, the Lord's anointed, is a share that a share haya hove veyavo, who was, who is, who is to come. Christ is eternal. He was. Asher Hayah is Hove and is to come. Okay? Yavo. The Antichrist was, is not, but is to come. He tries to look like Jesus. Now, this has to do with. The Roman emperors and Judas Iscariot, who's the son of perdition. Again, I point you to our book, Shadows of the Beast. But understand, it's a counterfeit of Christ. It's the Antichrist trying to counterfeit Jesus. The one who was, who is, who is to come is counterfeited by the one who was, who isn't, but is coming again. Just like there's a return of Christ, there's going to be a return of Antichrist, of the son of perdition. Okay. It's important that we understand this. He's always trying to look like Jesus to the point he comes on a white horse, at least in figure, in Revelation 6, counterfeiting Jesus in Revelation 19. Okay. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. The two witnesses are killed, and the seventh trumpet is sounded. Okay. Verse 18, the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small, the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of the covenant appears in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, 
and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This is the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe. This tells us something. Because of the time relationship to 1,260 days and 1,290 days, that the vile judgments, or the bold judgments as some people call them, the vile judgments corresponding to the peals of thunder, the seven peals of thunder, they are going to happen very quickly in a much more concise time frame. The seven vials happen faster than the seals and faster than the trumpets. Now, this all takes place in a three and a half year period. Okay? It all takes place. The entire book takes place in a seven year period, lunar calendar and so forth. But the judgments are always sequential. Okay? All of the sets of seven and revelation are sequential. The seven churches, the seven peals of thunder, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials. They're all sequential. But with each set of seven, it gains velocity. In other words, the trumpets happen faster than the seals. The seals happen faster than the seven churches, which is what we're going to talk about on Word for the Weekend on Sunday. Uh, so I'm not going to say anything further. These sets of seven are sequential, but each successive set of seven gains momentum, gains velocity. The seven churches, okay, that's the age of the church, basically. But then the seven seals, but then the seven trumpets happen faster than the seven seals, and the seven bowls happen quickly. So it gains velocity. It gains momentum. It's like going from alpha to omega. The further you approach the omega, the closer you get to the omega point, the faster you approach it. We have a teaching called the vector, the vector. I point you to the teaching, the vector. I explain it with the mathematical model. Okay, we look at velocity and energy of activation and the derivatives. I, I just do it as a vector in physics. I'm one of those guys who can understand science, but not technology. <laughs> I have knowledge, but I can't do anything with it. <laughs> the faster you get to the target, the closer you get to the target, the faster you approach it. Okay, so what do we see happening here? Once the two witnesses are dead and the third woe happens, the seven vials are going to come. But then the people become enraged. You think they'd be driven to repentance. One of the nonsense things that has been peddled by people good people with good intention is that when the rapture happens, people are going to see what's happening and it's going to be a, a big revival after the rapture. 
This is, of course, pure nonsense. The book of Revelation tells us, and men still did not depart from their evil deeds. They become worse. In our next book, we're going to see no bomb in Gilead. God's focus is now going back to Israel and the Jews in a very dark time in history after the rapture and resurrection. Do not believe this silly little fairy tale that the rapture is going to herald or induce or ignite some kind of a revival after the rapture. That is total nonsense. People will go from bad to worse and worse to worse still. God will not be dealing with the nations primarily. He'll be dealing with Israel and the Jews. That's not to say he will not be dealing with the nations at all, but it means his focus will be like in the Old Testament. Focused on Israel. It'll be Judeo-centric. Okay. So, in Revelation eleven eighteen, we see the nations become enraged. What does it say in Psalm 2? The nations are in an uproar. They're devising a vain thing. What is this vain thing? We shall see. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 16. Revelation 16, verse 19. And the great city was split into three sections, and the cities of the nations fell. Notice it's plural. The cities of the nations. We normally think of the Babylon motif as fallen, fallen is Babylon. That's how we have been conditioned to think. That is wrong. Just in scripture, Rome is called Babylon. Babylon is called Babylon. Babylon finds a new home in Pergamum. And ultimately, when the Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation, Jerusalem will be a Babylon. There's a Babylon that is religious in focus and Babylon that's political and economic in focus. One of the things I've been trying to study, I've just been busy, is in the first century, the predictions of Jesus and Daniel being destroyed in 70 AD, Jerusalem's destruction as Jesus and Daniel foretold. Okay, 70 AD. But then there was the destruction of Rome under Nero. The description of, of, of Rome as Babylon in Peter's epistle. And the imagery of Rome with the seven hills, the Capitolina, the Palatina, and so forth. If you've been to Rome, those seven hills surrounding and overlooking the Forum, not far from the Colosseum, ancient Rome now, Circus Maximus, that area. Do not think the fall of Babylon is limited to only one city. There are 
undeniable references to Rome and to Jerusalem and to places in the Middle East and, and so forth. However, there are other descriptions where the destruction will be visible by merchants on ships or sailors on ships. Jerusalem is separated from the Mediterranean. Jaffa, the biblical port of ancient Israel, today it's Haifa and Galilee, and it's Ashdod, which is between Tel Aviv and the Gaza Strip. Okay. Those are on the coastal plain of Sharon. Heading east, you have the area called the Shvila, Shvila, separating the coastal plain from the hills of Judea. And then you have the Judean hills where Jerusalem is. I'm not saying if there was some kind of massive explosion or something, you might not be able to see something happening in Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. But it basically doesn't meet the description. In ancient times, Rome had the Tiber River. The Tiber River was navigable by small ships. Uh, you have the uh, Kishon, Book of Kishon in Galilee from the story of Elijah. That was navigable by small ships in biblical times. You have in England the Trent River. The Trent River was navigable. There were ships that could reach the North Sea in the English Channel going from the English Midlands and from Nottingham. Now, it's not navigable now. It's just pleasure craft and, and barge traffic at most. But at one time, it, it had ships that could go a distance. Now, these would not be big ships by modern standards, but they were coastal sailing ships. They go on the coast of Europe all the way around to the Mediterranean. The Crusades left that way. Uh, when we look at the ancient geography, you have to take that into account. You just can't think of it in modern terms. We have to think of the geography of, of what's being described in terms of the way it looked when the text was written, if you can follow me. But if there are cities of the nations, well, <laughs> every nation has a big city. Babylon permeates the whole earth. We need to understand this. Let's look again at chapter 16, verse 19. There's a great city that split. Babylon was remembered before God and its fierce anger. And all these islands are destroyed and things of this nature. Okay. But it's the cities of the nations. It is plural. We should not be monofocal simply on one location concerning Babylon. There are multiple. There's at least two, but in a greater sense, more. Uh, London is the capital of the UK. Oh, wait a minute. Cardiff is the capital of the UK. Belfast is the capital of the UK. 
Edinburgh is the capital of the UK. At one time, Winchester was the capital of the UK. Let's look. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 18. We will see the three primary reasons this uproar happens, that these nations are in an uproar against Yahweh and his Messiah. Chapter 18, verse 23. The light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. This, of course, alludes to Matthew 25 and to Proverbs 31. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. After this, the only bridegroom is Jesus, and the only bride is the faithful church. The spirit and the bride say, come. This other married couple, their days are over. They've had their honeymoon. Now the real wedding is coming, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and 20. But I digress. It will not be heard of you any longer. Your merchants, your very great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. We translate it sorcery. The word is pharmakia. People of my generation, the hippies, when we had a move of God among the hippies in the United States primarily, but elsewhere as well, we came from a, a, a psychedelic drug background. And if you have any experience with like LSD or mescaline or psilocybin, the drugs that were very popular in my youth, and I took them all the time with my friends, even cannabis. And now the cannabis has become a lot stronger. They increase the THC content uh, with horticulture. Uh, they have this stuff called skunk, of all things. And the THC concentrations are unbelievable. When I was a kid, you had to have a kind of Moroccan hashish, zero, zero, which is very powerful, to get the way ordinary marijuana is now. People grow it in greenhouses. It's become legal in the States. It's widespread. It's a source of tax revenue. Uh, as one example, the overprescription of opioids and other drugs for no clinical reason. Most people don't understand how extensive opioid abuse has become among middle-class people. For medical reasons, I sometimes, well, every day I have to take certain drugs. But sometimes I'm forced to take medications with side effects, like prednisone. Okay, that's why I'm so plump <laughs> between the lymphatic edema and the prednisone. <laughs> if I <were laughs> If I ate nothing but bird seed, I'd still be plump. <laughs> but that's my problem. Uh, 
it's bad enough when you have to take these drugs for some legitimate clinical reason. But to use them recreationally or to use them without a real clinical warrant, people will just go into a clinic and say in, in, in California and say, I'm depressed, marijuana makes me feel better, and they'll get a prescription. They might even get a subsidized prescription. Get them all stoned. Get them all stoned. In previous generations, that was done with alcohol. Now, chemically, it's much more sophisticated and much more dangerous. We've often said mental illness never originates in the mind. When someone is mentally ill, there's either something wrong organically, chemically, or there's some, like hyperthyroidism, for instance, or there's something wrong spiritually, or a combination of the two. Someone may have a chemical problem organically, metabolically, and they may have a spiritual problem. But it's either God breathed on Adam, he became a living soul. Mental illness never comes from the mind. It comes from the spirit or the body or a combination of the two. Psychology is a pseudoscience. And unfortunately, psychiatric medicine has been infiltrated by psychology. But not only that, you try to treat people's problems with prescribing them drugs, tranquilizers, Prozac, opioids, now medical marijuana, so-called. The amount of people using drugs for, for no valid clinical reason, although I can get in trouble for saying that because the medical establishment and the pharmaceutical companies say there is. These things all have a personality modifying effect on consciousness and perception. They are all mind altering. There are medications we have to take that have side effects that are legitimate. But when you get into the recreational use of drugs or the overprescription of drugs to make money for pharmaceutical companies or try to solve people's problems of an emotional or spiritual nature with a prescription, this has gone global. And it's getting worse. There are different forms of occult in scripture. We did a teaching called Makshafut. Makshafut. It's the Hebrew word for witchcraft, but it's also the Hebrew word for the occult. It can involve necromancy, astrology, all these things. But one of the forms of witchcraft or occult in the Bible is this pharmakia the abuse and misuse of drugs that are mind-altering, that affect our perception and consciousness in a certain way. So, you think of it. God gave people a conscience to convict them of sin and to draw them to Christ. What happens when you try to nullify conscience? 
with drugs. And a therapist, a psychotherapist, is saying, you need to get rid of your guilt. Well, you do need to get rid of your guilt by repenting and accepting Jesus who paid the price for what we did. That's how we get rid of our guilt. <laughs> you don't get rid of your guilt by taking a pill that modifies your capacity to think straight. This is what's happening. This is an occult seduction. Now, I'm not denigrating psychiatric medicine validly practiced. And I'm not denigrating the use of valid drugs that help people. But the recreational use of drugs and the overprescription of drugs and, and, and misusing pharmaceuticals to try to treat spiritual and mental problems that it's only going to suppress the symptoms because it suppresses the person's mental capacity to deal with the issue. This is one of the things that Satan is going to use to cause people to follow Antichrist. Right now, with the lockdowns globally, the pandemic lockdowns, you're having more and more cases of psychosis, more and more people going stir crazy, like people in prisons, more and more marital and family relational problems and things like this. And with it, people are seeking medical help. A pill will cure it. Well, thank God for the things pills do cure. <laughs> But there's things only God can cure, and that's sin. Pharmacia the misuse of drugs, these drugs, is a form of witchcraft, sorcery. Secondly, look with me to Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, please. the dragon and the serpent of old, threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, is released for a short time. Notice, Antichrist has a short time and then at the end of the millennium, it's a short time. Whenever God lets Satan off the leash. It's always for a short time within certain parameters. We have a teaching called the 10 and the 40, where we deal with the difference between the valley and the wilderness and between trials that God brings us through and attacks of Satan and how you know the difference. I'd point you to that teaching, the 10 and the 40. But let's understand this. The next way it is going to happen, this nation's in an uproar, is going to be by satanic deception. 
we have always had demonic deception. We've always had demonic deception. It's always been around. But with the manifestation of Antichrist, something else is going to happen. There will be a satanic deception. It's like the difference between ultra and hyper. To understand satanic deception, what the Antichrist will do, as opposed to ordinary demonic deception. When it was demonic deception, it was obvious. Satanic deception is not obvious. With Judas, it says, Satan entered him. And the apostles didn't see it. It was not obvious. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Satanic deception is much, much, much better camouflaged than demonic deception. If people cannot see through demonic deception... If they cannot identify demonic deception, like the counterfeit laughing drunken revivals, some of that was demonic. If you can't see through demonic deception, through the ecumenical movement, through what's wrong with gay marriage and so as they call it, what's wrong with non-therapeutic abortion, these people are demonically deceived. If you can't see through demonic deception, there is absolutely no way you will have a chance of identifying satanic deception. If you can't swim the length of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, don't try to swim the English Channel the difference will be that great. Demonic deception, I wouldn't call it child's play, but in contrast to satanic deception, it is child's play. This deception is coming. If possible, the elect. So we see sorcery. Pharmacia. Second, the deception of Satan through Antichrist and false prophets. They are going to do it by counterfeit signs and wonders. They are going to mimic the miracles of Jesus, even the resurrection. It's going to be very plausible and very believable, and a lot of so-called Christians are going to swallow it. Look with me, please, now to Revelation 18.3. The nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts 
of immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Notice the relationship between sensuality and immorality and false religion and the love of money. When you have the love of money, you have a wrong idea of love to begin with. Sensuality. This, of course, is prolific among so many of my fellow charismatics and Pentecostal brethren. They think it's spiritual, but it's just sensual. And then you have this leading to immorality. But it goes in the same basket with false doctrine. False doctrine and immorality go hand in hand. That's what you see happen like to, to Bill Hybels in America, all these guys, <laughs> Benny Hinn and Paula White and things like this. The immorality goes hand in hand with the false doctrine and the love of money. So the sorcery, the satanic deception, and the immorality. We read about this immorality in, Prover in Revelation 17, 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, drunk with the wine of her immorality, or Revelation 18.9, committed acts of immorality, who lived sensuously with her. Notice they lived sensuously with false religion. I looked at some things this past week that we held up on one of our Bible studies. I think it was word for the weekend. And we looked at an evangelical magazine called Premier giving place to articles written by so-called Christian journalists that were accommodating transgenderism, same-sex marriage, among people who claim to be believers. False doctrine, sensuality, voila. Look with me, please, to Revelation 14, 8. It begins there. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. They become drunk on it, imbibed on it. I remember the leader of the Laughing and Drunken Counterfeit Revival in New Zealand. He was the leader of the Elam movement there. And during the revival, as he called it, 
20 women came forward. 20! And you saw people like they were behaving like they were inebriated, like they were intoxicated on alcohol. They were drunk. In reality, one fits the other like a glove. Well, where does this go? It goes to the ultimate showdown. Look with me, please, to Revelation 19.19. Actually, it's the penultimate showdown. The ultimate one is at the end of the millennium. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. I saw the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. The Antichrist and the kings of the earth, they're desperate. Now it's the end for them. Revelation 21, 24. The nations shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. When Jesus comes back, he is given the dominion over the nations. Satan will lose control. And he's fighting, obviously, to keep it. That's why he has the nations in an uproar. Look with me, please. To Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Remember, Jesus had three and a half years of public ministry. The Antichrist will be given equal time. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. They're all going to worship him. All of them. Whose names had not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God knows the future. He knows who's going to be saved. But that's not the same as saying he created people not to be saved. Hell is a place made for Satan and his angels, not for people. But God is omniscient and knows the future. So we continue. Look with me, please. To Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. All the nations will come and worship before thee, all of them. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. The tabernacle and the temple was opened. This quotes from Psalm 
86, verse 9. All the nations who now has made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. The book of Revelation basically paraphrases the Septuagint translation of that verse. And so, finally, we return once again to Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. The nations will be given to Jesus. Right now, the world is in the power of the wicked one. He controls the nations. But he is tightening his grip. He's trying to hold on to it, desperately so. What used to be demonic deception becomes satanic deception. Ah. A society inundated by pharmacia and the occult and drowning in immorality as if it's normative. Homosexuality, having children out of wedlock, none of these things are seen as immoral anymore. And those who say they are are despised. And now you've got people claiming to be Christians who are accommodating it. Well, that's it. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? They are devising a vain thing. Remember, Jesus is he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. Antichrist is only he who was, he who is not, and he who is to come. Right now, he's being restrained by the catacomb, the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians. As bad as the world is, Satan is still to a degree being restrained. But that's not going to go on much longer. He is going to have a free hand. The nations will be in an uproar against the Lord and against his anointed. They're going to hate those who remain faithful to Jesus because they hate Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? The world would love you if you're of the world. They love its own. They hate you because you're of me. Worldly Christians want to be friends with the world. <laughs> you can't be. You can't even be friends with the worldly church. 
they're in an uproar against the Lord and against his anointed. The nations are in an uproar. How does it end? The Lord gives Jesus the nations as his inheritance. And he shares it with us if we stay faithful to him. In the meantime, I get as discouraged as anybody with the way the world is going. I become frustrated with the persecution of Christians and nobody says a word. They don't care what China does or Saudi Arabia or Iran do. They don't care. The kings of the earth are drunk with immorality. Mammon worship. It gets to me. It bothers me. But it should bother all of us. So I go to the Lord. And I say, Lord, this is terrible. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. And he says, oh, don't worry, I'm coming. And when I come, it's going to be fast. But in the meantime, I see their day coming. And I'm laughing at them. Their arrogance will haunt them forever. Their arrogant rejection of God and his truth will haunt them forever. When they cross that point, God laughs at them. No, I can't laugh at what's happening. But God laughs at the ones who are doing it. Hard to get your head around that. But it's the truth. We need to see things the way he does. These arrogant people with the same sex and the transgender and the non-therapeutic abortion and the, the feminism and in God's book, they're a joke, a subject of ridicule. He sees their day coming, and so should we. But another day is coming. That day that's coming is the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath. Then he will speak to them in his anger. Oh boy, it's coming. But what's most impressive about this psalm in its prophetic meaning, pointing ahead mainly to the book of Revelation, is this. It is not something that God has primarily told us. 
He tells us, he lets us in on it. But when you read it, this is something God has told his son. I've installed my king on Mount Zion. Oh, the Antichrist may set up the abomination of desolation, but Yahweh is going to set up his king. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. For those who don't know Jesus, the psalm closes appropriately. Kiss, kiss, neshka, do homage to the son. Lest he become angry? No, he's already angry. And you perish in the way. Remember, he's already angry. Remember he said he wishes his fire was already kindled? He's already angry. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Not tribulation, not the ellipsis, wrath. We are not appointed unto wrath. The nations are. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do homage to the Son. His wrath may soon be kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. I take refuge in him. Most of you listening tonight take refuge in him. But most people in the world do not. His wrath is coming. He's angry at the nations. If you mock him, if you reject this message, he laughs at you. You can laugh at him. He laughs at you. And he who laughs last, last best because he'll be laughing forever. Do homage to the sun. Embrace the sun. Take refuge in the sun. Not because his wrath may soon be kindled, but we've reached the point where his wrath will soon be kindled. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. We'll continue with our next psalm, looking at Messiah and prophecy in the psalms. It'll be Psalm 16. Psalm 16 next uh, Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us and listening. God bless.